those who will be late will get the opportunity to visit Hashem here on the recording. Um, I'll just introduce Rabbi Marburger with stuff. Just, you know, it came out, Hashkacha had it, that it came out that this year is going to take place during Parshas Vayichi, where we, that's the famous time where Yaakov Avinu tells Yosef, you should do kindness, chesed shal emes. And we usually think of chesed of emes. What's chesed shal emes? That's usually with people who have already passed away. But the truth of the matter is, as I think we'll see from Rabbi Marburger's presentation, that real chesed is not only for the people who have passed away, but it's really a chesed for the people who are still alive and dealing with the tragedy of a, a loss of a relative, uh, making sure that it fits well with the halacha and everything is well with Shalom and the family. So the hashkacha had it that it came out in this week's parsha, and um, we look forward to hearing from Rabbi Marburger, who is well known, travels the country. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I think he'll be in our time zone in uh, at the H3 Summit in Chicago. Um, speaking on business topics, Rabbi Marburger is a Dayan in the Bezdin in Bezdin Meisharim of Lakewood, as well as an author of Svarim books, articles. You know, you can find him everywhere. And it's a schus that Rabbi Marburger was able to give us the time for us in St. Louis to hear some words of Hadracha in this sensitive and important topic. Rabbi Marburger. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Berkowitz, for inviting me, and I thank you, everyone, all for coming out and taking, taking from your busy schedule. So today I'd like to begin by discussing the tragic story of Max Feinberg. Uh, Mr. Feinberg was someone who was very concerned with Jewish continuity, so much so that when he was engaged in estate planning, he had his attorney add into his, tr into his trust a clause that if any of his descendants would marry out of the Jewish faith, they would be they would they would they would be disinherited. They would lose their share of the will of the trust. Now, unfortunately, time went on, and unfortunately, a number of his grandchildren did in fact marry out of the Jewish faith. When Max passed away, um, he left behind a substantial estate and even more substantial litigation. There were all sorts of uh, messy legal fights. Apparently, the, his, his grandchildren sued his children, in other words, their parents, accusing them of embezzling funds from the trust. The children responded that this lawsuit should be thrown out. The grandchildren had no standing because they had married out of the Jewish faith. They were not entitled to any share of the inheritance. Now, this went in front of a judge, it was, I believe, in, in, in Illinois, and the judge actually issued a ruling that this clause is not enforceable. Um, it was against public policy. And as a result, the judge ruled that these grandchildren had standing and had the ability to bring a, bring, bring a lawsuit against, against their parents. Now, when this ruling came out, you can imagine, it, it caused a bit of a ruckus. Essentially, a judge was declaring that fighting against intermarriage and assimilation was against public policy. So immediately a number of the national Jewish organizations uh, decided to get involved and they wanted to file, uh, to, to file a brief and amici of fury for the court basically arguing that people should, in order to, should be entitled to um, protect their religious beliefs and arguing that this clause should be, should be acceptable and should be enforceable. Now, while this was going on, um, again, there was a lot of outrage. There were a number of from attorneys that were working. Uh, this is actually bad enough that we had we managed to create some achdos among the many organizations. They were they, they they bound together and they were going to file a joint brief. One of the attorneys came to, into the office one day and said, "Wait a second, I'm learning zafiyomi, and based what I've learned, the judge may have been correct. Based on what I'm learning, this this um, this clause." may have violated halacha as well. And suddenly everything got, 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 got thrown into disarray. The firm organizations can't file a, file a brief arguing against the judge if the judge is correct, correct as a matter of halacha. So everything stops. Everyone asks the Shiloh uh, to understand what the issue is, what, what Gemara this attorney had learned. And to understand what the conclusion is, we need a little bit of a background in Hilfus Yerusha, which we're going to go through in, uh, over, the, over the next few minutes. Let's begin. 
the idea of Yerusha is, is, which is Yerusha simply means inheritance. Um, I think everyone understands that when a person passes away, he leaves behind assets. We need to have some system of what to do with these assets. Now, in every judicial system, there's what we we'll call a default. There's how the assets are divided or distributed, distributed among the Yerushim, among the inheritors, in the absence of any sort of will or estate planning. And then every system allow, allows some level of um, a testator to, to give some sort of instructions and directions of what, what his personal preference is. So we're going to begin by discussing what the halachic default is, the Seder Yerusha. Then we're going to discuss a little bit about whether a person is allowed to change it and how that can be accomplished. So the default um, Seder HaYerusha, before we describe what it is, um, a quick word about what it is not. It is not politically correct. Now, not only is it not politically correct, it actually has not been politically correct for a few hundred years. Even in the times of the Rush, um, who lived you know, about 800 years ago, um, it was clear that the Seder HaYerusha was, was not politically correct. There were people who were objected. What's interesting is at that time, what was in style was that your entire estate passed to your eldest child. Uh, they had the, the, roughly the equivalent of, of the idea of a bachar. That is how kings and noblemen, that when, they, when they passed away, they wanted one child to take over the entire estate, the entire castle, the entire kingdom, instead of dividing it among, among all the siblings. So that's what they did. The only person that got any, any, any inheritance was the oldest. Uh, the rush was asked to devise a, a halachic estate plan that mirrored what was in style. And he made it very clear that, that it may have been in style, it may have been the, the, the fad at the time, but the rush says, let's stick with halacha, let's follow the Seder HaYerusha. Let's begin. When a person passes away under the Seder, under the default Seder HaYerusha, his assets all go to his sons. Now, to be clear, if, if, there are, if he has any living, if, he, if, his, if his sons are alive, grandchildren are not Yarshan. Grandchildren get nothing if he has sons that survive him. Um, if a person has no sons, he only has daughters, his daughters will be his Yarshan. But as we're going to see, the Arusha flows through the, the male line. It's, it's, it's the, the, the testator gives it to his sons, it goes to his father, it goes to his grandfather. It is always goes through the male, the father, the husband, as opposed to, to, to the woman. We'll, explain to, we'll get back to that and, and, and dive into that a little bit more a, a bit later. But the default is a person passes away, his sons, you know, his blood relatives that come first are his sons. If he has no sons, then his daughters will yarsh or inherit the estate. Now, if any of his sons predecease him, then, then their children will take over their share which means assuming a person has three sons, and let's, um, let's, put it, let, let, let's ignore the idea of a Bukhar, uh for the moment, but assuming a person has three sons, he passes away, his estate would be divided in three equal portions. If one of his sons predeceases him and leaves over, say, four children, so his estate still gets divided into three portions. The two surviving sons will each get one-third of the estate. The remaining third... Will, which should have gone to the predeceased son, will now go to the predeceased son's family. And therefore, his four sons will collectively in inherit the one-third share that their father was entitled to. Now, if a person passes away, he has no sons, he has no daughters, uh, no, no, no grandchildren. In that case, the Yerusha flows up a generation, which means the, the, the deceased father would inherit his estate. Now, if his father was alive, he would take everything. If the father is no longer alive, then Yerusha goes up to the father, but then flows down to the father's Yarshim, which essentially means the deceased brothers, or if, he, um, brothers, or if he has no brothers, um, then his sisters, if any of his brothers or sisters predeceased him, then would go to their children, would step in, step in, their, sho in, in their shoes. Um, if he has no, if, he, if his father is no, is, is no longer alive and he has no siblings or nephews or nieces, then the Yerusha flows up a, a generation higher. It goes to his grandfather, his father's father, 
assuming his, his grandfather is no longer alive, it flows down to his Yerushim, which already w- would be his uncles, his cousins, etc. Um, now, that continues until you find a Yerush. If you, any Jew, if you go back far enough, you go back enough generations, we're all connected via Yaakov Avinu, all the Shvatim, so there's, there's no limit. You just keep on going up a generation and then branching out to cousins, second cousins, etc., until a Yerush is, is found. Now, a mother does not inherit her children. Yerusha always goes through the male line. Um, it goes through a father, it goes through a father, a grandfather. A, a, a mother is not a Yerush. Um, on the other hand, if a woman passes away, her children do inherit her estate, both her son, if there are sons, they will get it. There are no sons that will go through a daughter. Now, when it comes to a husband and wife, we have a bit of an interesting halacha, and there's a very big difference between the impression one would get by learning a Chumash and the actual facts on the ground. Um, as far as the, the, hala, the, 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 the theoretical halacha, so a husband does yarsh in his wife's estate in its entire, entirety. If the husband survives his wife, then uh, the children get nothing. It all goes to the husband. The reverse is not true. A woman does not his, inherit her, her husband. Now, what that would appear to mean is that if a woman, if a, if a, if, if, if the husband passes away, the Arusha flows to the children and the mother is left without any support, the reality is, is, is rather different for a number of reasons. The first reason is, is that although she is not technically a Yerush, she does not inherit it. On the other hand, through the Ksuba, she is entitled to essentially lifetime support. Um, a Ksuba, when we think of a Ksuba, we think of a lump payment of 200 Zuz when a person gets divorced. Um, but a Ksuba also requires, and there are various Hakanis Chazal, if, if, if the husband pre, um, predeceases his wife, he has a claim against the estate for lifetime support for mezainas, for food, for most medical bills. She's entitled to shelter, the equivalent of, of, of what she enjoyed while her husband was alive. She's entitled to cleaning help for that matter. They had avadim or slaves helping out around the house. She's entitled to essentially full support to maintain the same standard of living that she enjoyed while the husband was alive. So although she is not a Yerush in the sense the assets don't flow into her account, she can't go ahead and, get, and gift it away and decide to transfer it to her siblings or to anybody else. She doesn't own it. Nevertheless, she is cared for for life until she either remarries or she claims, claims her ksuba. Now, because of this, no one ever, a, a widow will, will never claim a ksuba because the ksuba is a one-time lump sum of a few thousand dollars. Um, when she, if, she doesn't, if, he, if she collects that, she loses her support, which is always substantially more than that. And therefore, a widow is essentially entitled to full support until, she, until the rest of her life or unless, unless she remarries. And that's the first reason or way in which a, a married woman is taken care of after, after her husband passes away. But today, there's another, there's a, there's a second point, um, which is, makes even a more substantial difference. And that is, for many people, the bulk of their wealth is tied up in their, in their, in their house, their personal residence. Many people today, especially in the United States, this is a bit less common you know, a few hundred years ago in Europe, but most people have their houses under their, their name and their wife's name. If you think about it, what that means, forget about Hilton Jerusha. It means during the lifetime, if you buy an asset and it's registered under your name, your, your name, both spouses' names, presumably the spouses are equal partners in that, which means that when one of them passes away, the other one doesn't have to come to Bethesda and say, as a matter of a inheritance, I should be entitled to a share of the estate. At least half of the property belongs to them simply because it was bought on their behalf. They may, have paid for, may, they may have contributed to the upkeep, they may not have. That's mostly irrelevant, but half the house is probably, is probably there. And we move on to people's bank accounts and the brokerage accounts. Typically, in a, you know, very, in a typical stable fa- household, the, account, the bank accounts will be joint accounts. They'll be under both spouses' names. Now, in that case, if one of them, and, if there's, and especially if there's rights of survival on that account, if someone passes away, we don't necessarily have to look to the Seder HaYerusha, what happens, how an inheritance flows, it's not an inheritance. While everyone was still alive, because it, the account was under both of their names, um, it would, in the very least, be looked at as jointly owned 
you can probably you can you you could um, probably make the argument that there's a right to survival that it passes to the surviving status by operation of law that may completely bypass the entire concept of the Seder Hayrusha. Now, of course, this applies only when the accounts are under both names, the house is under both of them. If it is under only the, the husband's name, this certainly will not apply. And then the Yershin would be the children, again, subject to a lifetime estate. Um, but in a typical case where the assets and the bulk of the assets under both of their names, the woman will, will end up with at least half of it, even without having to deal with the Seder Hayrusha. Um, another example, another, 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 another area where there's protection is when it comes to term life insurance policy. Uh, many people protect their spouses with, with, with a life insurance policy. A life insurance policy, if you think about it, is you're paying a monthly premium to the insurance company. In exchange for that, the insurance company obligates themselves that upon your passing, there'll be a lump pay, uh, payment made to your spouse. That is not subject to the laws of Yerusha. Yerusha inheritance is an asset that you own while you're alive. A person passes away. Who does that? Who, who inherits that asset? Where does it flow to? In this case, the insurance company obligated themselves in exchange for the premium. They will pay the death benefit to whoever the named um, beneficiary is. So if the named beneficiary is a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a charity, whatever it may be, that will completely bypass the laws of Yerusha and whoever the beneficiary is will be entitled to those funds. So while on one hand, in strict Hilchus Yerusha, a wife is not a Yerush, on the other hand, the fact, the practical, and for practical matter, they end up with, you know, it's certainly in, in, in a typical or more modest estate, uh, virtually everything um, by virtue of A, the fact that assets are under their name, and B, the fact that they're entitled to lifetime support um, uh, um, um, until they get remarried. Now, I want to, talk, to briefly address the idea of a Bukhar. Um, a Bukhar, if the firstborn child is a male, so it is known as a Bukhar, um, assuming he's actually born naturally, not via Zarian. But a Bukhar is entitled to Pishnai. A Bukhar gets a double share of the Yerusha, which means if a person has three, three sons and one of them is a Bukhar, the estate is divided into four equal sections. The Bukhar will get two of those portions or a half of the estate, the remaining two children will get one of those portions or one quarter of the estate, quarter, a quarter or a half, and that is, and then and there we, we end up with, um, it's being divided, the Bukhar getting a, a double share. Now there's an important ex exclusion to this idea of a Bukhar, and that is a Bukhar gets a double share only in tangible assets that are in the, that are in the deceased possession at the time of his death. On the other hand, if he's owed money, if there's a choyv, something which is roy, it's not, it's not, it's not tachas yodoy, it's something which is owed to him, then all the sons are treated equally, everyone will get an equal share. Now this raises a fascinating question. A person, what happens if a person dies? He leaves over a bachar and two other children and $15 million of cash in the bank. How is it divided? Now if you think about it, what is cash in a bank? Is that tangible, a tangible asset? Or is that a debt that's owed to the account holder? Now, when you deposit money in, in, in a bank, it's not going into a safe deposit box. Essentially, you're lending the bank money. Now, it's a loan which is due upon demand. You can withdraw it at any time. But until you withdraw it, there's no dollar that belongs to you that they are physically holding. Again, there are certain reserve requirements, but you're essentially lending money to the bank. And therefore, um, quite a number of places can hold that money that's deposited in a bank is not tan a tangible asset, a debt that's owed, and therefore the Bukhar will not get his double share um, on funds in the bank. Now, if you're the type of person who has a wad of cash sitting in a, in, a, in a safe deposit box, that would be different. That's not a debt. That's a, a wad of bills. Um, and that would, the Bukhar would be entitled to, to his double share. But money in a bank, um, anything which is not which is not the other, they are ready. There will be a claim for for Pishnayim, um, that the car would have. The same would be true in real estate. Person's house, if he if if, if he passes away, his son Yarshin him, the Bukhar will be entitled to a double share of of the estate. So he'll get twice as much as the other boys. Now, if you put this all together, what comes out is the default is rather different 
than today's expectations and the way most people divide their estate. The default is the daughters get nothing. The default is the wife is not a Yorish. She gets the support, whatever's in her name, but she doesn't get, she doesn't actually have, have control of any asset that wasn't in her name. And the default is the Bukhar, the eldest son, um, assuming the first born, he, was, he was born, before, he was the first born and, and the natural birth, would get twice the share of his siblings. Um, I've personally never seen anyone actually distribute his estate like this. And this leads us to a couple of, a couple of, couple of critical questions. And the first is, when we have this set of halachas, um, when the Torah tells us how it gets divided, is this just a default? When you don't make, get, leave any instructions, we have to figure out what to do, this is how it's divided? Or is the Torah telling us this is the way it should be done? This is how the assets, this is the, the way you ought to divide your assets. So to answer this question, so let's go through a, a, a simple Mishnah in the last Gimel. And the Mishnah says as follows. It's, it's, it's a short Mishnah, I'll just read the language inside. Someone who writes his assets over to other parties, and he leaves, he forsakes his children, he cuts them out. Masha what he did is effective. A person has his own, his, 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 his house to do what he wants with his assets. Chazal are not happy with his actions. So the mission is telling us is number one, you have the halachic ability to change this default and, dis- and distribute the assets as you see fit. But the mission is telling us, it's not the right thing to do. And therefore, what we see clearly in the mission is that this, this Seder Hayerusha is not just a default. What to do in the absence of any instructions, we see this is the preference. This is the, this is the appropriate way to divide it and tinkering with it, although it, it, it's effective, but it's not the right thing to do. Uh, there is an, a, the Ramos quotes a fascinating story from the Mordechai, Bavasra Tafresh Chavay, that has the following scenario. A person goes to, vis- goes to visit someone on his deathbed. The fellow who is dying turns to his friend and says, listen, I've, I know my time has come. He hands him a stack of gold and says, I'm going to be gone shortly. Take this money, distribute it in the best way possible. He says, Shema, and with those words, he passed on. Now, this friend was holding a stack of gold and uh, wasn't quite sure what to do with this money. His instructions were to do the best thing possible. What is that? So this question got posed to the Mordechai. Now, if I would ask you what advice you'd give that person. So I think that what would first come to mind is you'd say, um, you know, you have a stack of gold, give it to the St. Louis Kaila. Give it to your shul, give it to your shul. You find a, a charity, in, and the, 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 a worthy charity that, that, that should be given to. That wasn't the Mordechai's response. Mordechai said, give it to his Yarshim. Find out who his children were, his sons, his daughters, whatever it may be, follow the Seder HaYerushim. And the logic behind it, although the Mordechai doesn't speak it out, is, 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 is very simple. If the best thing to happen to your assets and upon your passing is, it goes to charity, then the Torah would write. When a person dies without a will, the Kayin comes, takes it all to the base of Igdash, and everyone moves on. That's not what the Torah says. The Torah says it goes to the children, which means that is what the, that's the, that's the best thing, if you will, to, to, for that to happen. Um, and therefore, it's again clear that this is not just a, a default, but the Torah's preference. And changing it, cutting, cutting people out of, out of the will, is considered against halacha. Now, just an interesting anecdote, um, I wrote a, 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 a pamphlet a number of years back about the Seder Hayrusha, and I published it just it shortly before Pesach. I remember literally, you know, a day or two after it came out, I started getting phone calls. And getting phone calls from throughout the country, people who had chanced upon it, had read it, and they had wanted to consult with me about their personal estate plan. And the first person calls and he explains to me about how he is estranged from his children, he doesn't speak to any of his children, and he wants to give it to charity, he want to, and he explains his, his, his story, and he wants me to make sure that this is binding on halakha. The next day, another person calls, he's in a fight with his son, the other one's in a fight with his daughter, and one after another, they're all asking about, about they're all dealing, dealing with tragic scenarios where they weren't on talking terms with their children, they want to cut their children out of their, out of their will. I remember thinking, like, has the world gone mad? 
Am I the only one that still talks to, talks to my parents? I go, until I realized there's a little bit of an adverse selection going on. Um, you know, regular people who are just dividing the estate assets equally don't feel a need to work the phones and call rabbis to make sure their, 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 their will is going to be enforceable. Uh, they have a little bit more confidence. It's the people who are in these tragic and unfortunate scenarios that are, are, are scrambling and want to make sure that it's covered. But as a matter of halacha, cutting a child out of the will, uh, the mission says pretty clearly is, is going to be awesome. Um, now, what if, and you know, under normal circumstances, a parent is not going to cut a child out of the will? What if they don't get along? They don't speak to each other. And, for, and let's just assume, let's say the child has not treated his parents correctly. He doesn't, doesn't respect them appropriately, doesn't talk to them. The child is not acting the way he should be. So for, for, so for that, the mission continues. If his children were not acting appropriately, then Then if you cut them out of the will, Zakhar Latoyev should be remembered for good. That is the appropriate thing to do. In other words, according to Shem Gamaliel, while you're supposed to follow the state of Yerusha and not tinker with it, if a child is a, is, is a Russia not acting appropriately, um, then, 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 then they should be cut out. So we have a Mephikas. The Tanakhama says across the board, never disinherit a child. Shem Gamaliel says if, if the child doesn't act appropriately, then, 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 then you could disinherit what is Allah? So the Gemara says, Shmamr Shmoler of Yehuda, Lodhavi Be'avuri Afsanza, to me, Brabisha, we brought up. Loyadina, my Zara, nothing me. Shmuel told her of Yehuda, don't ever be involved in disinheriting a child. Even if one child is a Russia and you want to shift the assets from this Russia to another sibling who is a Sadiq, don't do it. And he explains, Loyadina, my Zara, nothing me. You never give up on a Jewish child. You never write them off. You never say, this is, a, this is my child's a Russia. I don't want him to have the assets. He'll just use it for, 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 for bad purposes. You never give up on them. You don't know what will come. And therefore, even if one child's a Russia, the other's a Tzaddik, don't cut him out of the will. So as a matter of halacha, this is what we follow. And disinheriting a child under almost all sorts of circumstances is, is wrong. It's, and the, it's us to do. Um, you know, going back to when I was getting these phone calls from people, it, these were very difficult and painful conversations. Because as you can imagine, a, a parent that's ready to disinherit a child has gone through Gehenna in his life, in his relationship. And it was all his rule and all pain. And, you know, I'll have to assume, at least for the sake of the, con- sake of the conversation, the parent is right that the child's behavior was not appropriate. Nevertheless, we don't write off children, we don't give up on them, and completely cutting them out, cutting them out is not what should be done Allah. Now going back to the Feinberg situation, this is the Gemara that the attorney had come across. And the attorney had said, if the halacha is you're not allowed to disinherit a child, even a child who is a Russia cannot be disinherited, so then the judge seems to be correct that this Jewish clause in the Feinberg estate violated halacha because it was disinheriting the children that married out. And that was the question that was asked. As far as halacha l'mayisah, there's an igris moisha in Cheshmish, but Kelly Beis, Nun, that says there's one exception to this halacha. And that is, if a child's a Russia, you still don't disinherit them because you never give up hope on a child. On the other hand, he takes that next step and marries out of the faith. Where the, grand, where, the, where the next generation will not even be Jewish. He says, are, that's a different set. And once they've completely left the fold, this idea doesn't, of, of Abu Rehaksanta doesn't apply. And he says, their person couldn't, their, their, in that case, a person could, in fact, cut him out of the will. Now, as a result of this Igros Moshe, the attorneys actually went ahead. They filed the brief. Ultimately, this ruling was overturned. Um, the, the, you know, the children were cut out of the trust more, more for technical reasons than for them revisiting the underlying, you know, public policy matter, but the case was, was thrown out. Now, what that leads us to is, is, you know, two, two interesting questions. On one hand, we're saying disinheriting a child unless they marry out of the fold is going to be up. Almost everyone's will, if they're not aware of this halacha, does just that. It disinherits their child. Why do I say that? 
Because a typical simple estate plan is what you call an I love you will, where both the husband and the wife write reciprocal wills that whoever survives them inherits everything. And if you think about it, if the, husband, if, the, if the wife survives the husband and they have what we'll call the so-called I love you wills where everything goes over to the wife, as we started off with, when a person passes away, in a matter of halacha, his sons are his yarshim. Yerusha should flow to his sons. Now, again, we just explained the wife will be taken care of for life and things that are in her name. But everything else, the physical assets, the metoxalin, the other assets, in halacha should go to, should go to his son. If the will states that if the wife survives the husband, everything goes to the wife, when the husband dies, he is completely uprooting the state of Hayrusha. And therefore, this creates a real, a very real challenge in halacha. People unwittingly are, are disinheriting their children. Now, it's true when the wife dies, when the second, when, when at that point it will flow to the children. But that, you know, that, that, that can happen years later. It doesn't take away from the fact that when the, when, when the husband died, the Kosirusha was totally ignored. So how do we address this scenario? And, and a related question is, um, in the state of Hayyarusha, a daughter is not a yours. Today, it is virtually unheard of for a person to write in his will that, his, that, that, that everything goes to the sons and daughters get nothing. What is the halachic justification for this? For this, for this we find that as an ether, it's brought down, it's brought down by a taz, that it's placed in many, many, many other places, and they say the following. The mission that says you cannot cut, disinherit a child is talking about when you completely disinherit them. You cut them out of the will, they get zero. They get nothing. That is going to be author unless you're dealing with someone who literally married out of the fold. On the other hand, if you're not completely cutting them out, you are just shifting the asset. You're giving everyone a piece of the pie, but you're shifting it instead of giving the Bukharas, the Pishnayim, the regular sons their one share, the daughters nothing, you want to go ahead and, 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 make, and, and, and give a level of assets, either to your wife to make sure she's taken care of, you want to give it to your daughters, whatever it may be. So many places can rule that as long as every halachic yerush is getting something, uh, the equivalent of dollars of the huven, four gold coins, then a person is free to, to allocate the rest of it as he sees fit. Now, this is a machoikis, but as far as the practice on the ground today, this is the shita that is generally followed. And therefore, what people will do is they will make sure that there's a cargo. They'll make sure that there's the equivalent of Valzuvin, some amount of money that will flow to the Yorushim based on the Seder Hayyarusha, based on this Halakhic order. And the rest, they distribute it generally. They will give their daughters an equal share. The Bukhara will get usually the same amount as, as, as everyone else. And most people will make sure that their spouse, their wife, their, if she survives them, will, will get the bulk of the, of, of, of the estate because, again, for many reasons, that's, that's, that's simply what works. So, therefore, what comes out is a person who has, who has a, what we'll call a, a will that, that his wife inherits everything that if, if she survives him, there should be some exclusion of this Dal of Zuhuvim that should, that should flow to his Yerushim based on the Seder Ayurusha, and everything else he can give to, it, to, to his wife. Um, if he has daughters and wants to make sure they get their share, then as well, leave Dal of Zuhuvim to go to the sons based on the Seder Ayurusha, the Bukhara will get, it, get, get, it, get, get his extra share of this carved out but everything else you can do as you see fit. Now, as far as the size of the carved out, uh, it's Dalazuvim, four gold coins. Now, what the value of that is not very clearly defined. Uh, the placement seems to assume that it means it has to be an amount that has some level of significance, but it certainly should not be enough that people will fight over. Um, now, what that means in practice very much depends, is, you know, depends on, the, on, the, on the size of the estate and the kind of people that you're involved with, but it should be an amount that has a cheshivah that is a level of, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not just a rounding error, um, so it has some level of, of importance, but not enough to create a, create a machoik. And halachlamayis, so the bottom line is virtually everyone that writes the will essentially leaves it to their, whatever their wife will need, make sure that she may, they give it to them through the will instead of having to go through the technical details of being of support. And virtually everyone gives their daughter an equal share uh, because just and if you don't do that, they will, it will probably cause tremendous machoikis in the family. Uh, now, just to, to just to spend a moment, moment or two, focusing on the you know we discussed the default, we've discussed the permissibility of shifting it, 
let's just talk a little bit about how to shift it. And that is in halacha, there's a concept of, of, of a Kenyan. A person just says, I want to give my car to my, to my daughter. Words, talk is cheap. And simply saying what you'd like rarely is enforceable as a matter of halacha. And therefore, you typically need a king. You need some, some sort of formal king and some sort of formal action to transfer over assets. And when it comes to estate planning, um, it's a little bit, it's a bit of a challenge. Because if you, read, if you read a legal will, it does not conform with the halakhic requirements of a transfer. Um, one of the basic reasons why is that in halakha, the state or hayerusha is what happens when a person passes away. A person can't change or the state of Ayusha. A person can give away assets while he's alive, and therefore the state of Ayusha will, not, will never kick in because they're already given away. But the transfer for, to be effective in halacha, estate planning has to be done a moment, at least a moment before the person passes away. The way a will is written does not technically conform with the halacha requirements, and therefore there are some opinions that say that if it goes to a bezin, a legal will will be ignored because it doesn't follow the correct form and the correct halachic legal structure. Um, that being said, it was the opinion of the Igris Moshe and a number of others that because wills are widely accepted, it's a custom, if you will, most people, in, even most Jews in the United States, rely on a secular will. So for a variety of halachic arguments, um, in many places we do say that it will be honored and does have halachic validity. Um, if many, many people rely on, on those opinions and will rely on their will simply based on the fact that A, that's the norm, B, most children will not question it. If the parents left over clear instructions, whether or not it's technically binding in halacha, um, most children will, will, will respect their parents' wishes enough and will not try to challenge it. But in what we'll call high-risk situations where there is an expectation or a fear that the children do not get along, there will be an attempt to overturn it or to, or to, or to challenge it, then people add what, you know, make sure to write a, what's called a shtar chatizacher, some sort of Hebrew agreement um, that gives this, this, you know, the, the, this will, you know, teeth, if you will, in halach. Um, you know, again, the, the, the details of it are, are, are fairly technical, it's not for today, but I think one important takeaway that I'd like to stress is the importance of having some level, some will, or some level of estate plan. Because if you think about it, if a person dies without any will whatsoever, without any estate plan, so if a matter goes to court, a judge will divide it in accordance with whatever the civil laws are, which I'm not familiar with what the laws are in the various states and in St. Louis, what, 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 what you're governed by. But it's safe to assume the way the assets will be distributed will not be consistent with halakha. Now, what that means is, as far as halakha is concerned, you have assets that perhaps should go to a bachar or should go to a, to a son. A judge will, through probate, give it to a daughter. As a matter of halakha, they're, they're, they're simply not entitled to those funds. Um, you're creating a, situ- a, a potential scenario where someone will have assets that they're not entitled to in halakha, and in halakha, we'll look at that simply as theft. Um, this can simply be avoided. A person writes a will, person make, leaves over clear instructions in a way that's binding legally, so then the judge will follow the instructions, and according to the opinion of the Grismation and many others, Allah will follow those instructions as well. And therefore, A, you'll accomplish that what you want will actually happen. Everyone has their own family situation and preference. And number two, you're avoiding a scenario where someone will get assets that are entitled to legally, but in Halakha, someone else may might be entitled to it, where essentially you're creating a tremendous messiah and a tremendous temptation um, and create all sorts of, all, all sorts of issues. Uh, and just to end with one, one final thought, and that is a very common question that I get when, when people are, are engaged in estate planning. Um, there is a, one of the biggest questions or, or the people grapple with is, on one hand, everyone loves their children, children equally. Everyone understands that children should all be treated the same and treated fairly. On the other hand, people have, you, very often there'll be a child with, with unique or special needs or situation. You can, have, you can have a family where one child is struggling financially more than anybody, more than other people in the family. And there's a question of, do I go ahead and give more to one over another? 
Now, as far as halacha, the person wants to do it, as long as you're not just inheriting a child, and halacha is okay. On the other hand, the Gemara tells us that that a person should should never um, discriminate or, or 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 show favoritism among his children. And the Gemara says the source of this is with Yaakov and Yosef Hatzad. We know Yaakov, you know, get treated Yosef specially. He gave him a plain of passion. Um, he, he was, he was, his, he was his Ben Zakunim. He showed a special affection for him. So although it was there with very good purpose, and although we were dealing with the Shifteka, the Shvatim, who were all Tadikim, nevertheless, the Gemara says, the result of treating one child with, 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 or giving him more than the other, the results were tragic. They ended up being sold and ended up, ended up, ended up in Mitzrayim. And therefore, it's something which a person should really think long and hard. If there is a special need for, for, for one child has a need, it's usually a lot safer to try to help him out while you're still alive, help him out with buying a house, whatever it may be. But when it comes to a will, when it comes to a document which is permanent um, which is, and, and, and not really dealt with until after a person's passing, you have, to, you have to give tremendous pause and be very hesitant before you start treating your children differently. Um, the more equally you treat them, the better the, the better the chance that they'll accept the will and and and, and it won't cause it won't cause tension. Um, and one of the biggest tragedies is that it's one thing when when siblings fight, but it's, it's when a person works his entire life to, to to accumulate wealth, and at some point in his life he's not doing it for himself. He has what he needs. He's doing it to pass it on to the next generation. If that wealth ends up being the source of friction, it ends up being the source of machlokes. And, and, and causing issues in the family, then you know, that, that's just a, a double tragedy. And therefore, while no one wants to, likes thinking about estate planning, no one likes to think about that, that one day, um, you know, this is something that will be relevant, relevant to all of us, it's, it's, you know, it's important to take the time, give it a little bit of thought, and set up your affairs in a way that will both be consistent with halacha and avoid any, any mahlaikas. And thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Marburger. If it's okay, if we have some time for a few questions. Sure. Okay. Um, Steve, did you want to ask yours or should I ask it on? There was a couple that came in through the chat or if you want to unmute yourself, you can ask. Um, okay, one question that came in is, could you please clarify whether the predeceased Bihar's sons take 100% of their grandfather's estate thereby dispossessing their father's brothers, or whether the grandson... No, 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 no. And if anyone, if anyone predeceases their, their, their father, their children step into their shoes. They never get more than, the, than, 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 than their father would have gotten. The Rush's case was the Goyim, used to, you know, the noblemen used to do that because they didn't, want, they didn't want their estate to be divided up and their kingdom to be chopped into little pieces. But in Halakha, the children... You know, a, 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 if a child predeceases the father, his children just step into his shoes and get what he would have received. Okay, thank you. Are, are there any other questions? If someone wants to unmute, they can ask their question. Okay. Can I ask some questions? Sure, just one more question if I can from the chat before we get to that. Can we rely on the Igoris Moshe and prepare estate planning based on American law? I think the practice is most people do rely on the Ibris Moshe, and again, there are a number of other you know, places to talk about it. Um, so most people will do it in cases where, like I said, if there's any concern that there'll be litigation going to Bezner or something like that, then it's unwise because you want to make the estate planning as airtight as possible. In the absence of it, and especially when the children will, will respect your wishes, regardless of its halakhic enforceability, then, then you're okay relying on, on a legal will. And I think most of American Jewry, that's probably what they do. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, whoever was gonna ask the question before. Yeah, uh, so I, I just jotted down three quick questions. Um, uh, the Rev spoke about in general, but what about specific items? Like I want my mother's candlesticks. No, I want my mother's candlesticks. And is there a way to um, say, well, if anybody's fighting, this is what they should, you know, this is the procedure to to avoid the fight or to decide on the fight. And then is there a Mila to keep the Sadi Yerusha? I know the Rev said that he's never seen anybody do that, but is there a Mila to say only the boys are getting and the boys getting double and the girls aren't getting? 
Okay, so just start with, start with, the, with the last question first. Um, is there an advantage of doing it? The answer, short answer is yes. In theory, it is certainly preferred. In practice, you have to weigh the, the, the fact that well, although it's a loss of preference, you're going to destroy your family. Not many son-in-laws will, will, will say, will be okay with that. Um, again, there's a little bit of historical background. It, they, there is that way back, people used to give a dowry when their daughter got married. At some point when Nagalos became, people couldn't afford necessarily to give a dowry at the time of the wedding. They started at the wedding, they would give a Shtarachati's offer, which essentially was a document saying that the son-in-law will get a share of the inheritance, um, you know, when, when, when the father-in-law passes away. And that was in the place of the dowry. Today, it would be rather, you know, it would be rather odd or offensive if before the young man walks down the chuppah, he calls his future father-in-law over and say, okay, I want you to, I want you to, you know, rewrite your trust and your will right now. So it's not done, but it's kind of expected. And if you're going to go ahead and decide it's, it's a nice chumrah to take, but to take a chumrah that will destroy your family, you know, again, you're better off finding, finding something else to do. So it's, it's you know, in theory, it's, it's preferred, but in practice, it's almost never, um, you know, a good idea. And, and, and the, the, the problems that, will, will, that, it, that it causes almost always outweigh that, that, that benefit. Um, now, as far as, as candlesticks and things like that, so, so you really have two options. One is to, while the person's alive, just start giving things out. You know, not uncommon for people to start giving out jewelry. That is the best way to avoid machlekes, uh, with one caveat that if it's given away at the end of someone's life when they're weak and perhaps not completely with it, then then you know that can destroy a family. Questions over mental competence, but that's 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 not for now. Otherwise, as far as your question of to avoid machlekes, yes, very often either someone appoints an executor who will divide it up and he has the discretion to make these decisions and try to avoid this like this. Um, there are various methods. There's uh, you know, you, one person picks first and then, then you know, you go down the line and whoever picks last gets two choices or three choices. There are various methods. The short answer is if your children want to fight and if that's, you know, you know, they're looking for to cause Malpicus, there's probably nothing you can do that will, that will completely eliminate that possibility. Uh, the most effective estate planning is to try to train them well and set a good example, Mechayim, and that will hopefully mi minimize Mechayim. I have a question, if possible, please. Sure. Thank you. Um, do you have anyone to recommend that we can contact? I mean, if we could contact you, that would be great, but you probably have a one. We have a, a blended family situation. My husband has a Bahor, I have a Bahor. Have you got anyone that you can recommend that we can speak to in the halachic world, like how to approach this? Okay, you know, I'll send a recommendation you know, offline. I'll forward it to, to, to Ray Berkowitz. Thank you. Okay. Okay, one, if there's no other question, just one other question that came in is where can we obtain acceptable templates for wills and trusts? That are halakhically acceptable, I guess, in the most way. Okay, a, a trust actually is 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 a whole different a whole different beast. Um, a, a an irrevocable trust probably would um, be acceptable in halakha if it was done for real. Um, there are some forms online from the Best of America. Refival Cone has a conscious midar ladar. We has one published in the back that's you know for people to photocopy. You know, if you're interested, you can download. I have a, a, a mentioned a, a booklet about about these halachas that you can download from stories.com. You can just download the booklet. It's about 30 pages and goes through many of the halachas that we've discussed in, in today in a lot more depth for people who want to get a little bit of a better, deeper understanding. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so very much. Very good. Can I ask one question? Yep. I, I Based on what we said before that we could rely on the Igros Moshe, you know, people who advertise doing halachic estate planning and all that, essentially that's not necessary if you rely on the Igros Moshe. Meaning, so if you just follow American law and you, you direct how you want your assets, you know, split up, then what's the point of doing a halachic estate plan? The, the, the point is twofold. The first is that someone who's doing that will, will guide you to make sure that the Yarsham always gets something, who will create that carve out, that you won't have a situation where a wife gets everything and, and the sons are being disinherited. 
The second point is, is that, is that um, while the Icarus Moesha was, you know, the bottom line place in America, you know, we're all Jewish. There are a lot of different opinions, different opinions out there, and therefore some people do not want to rely on Moesha when there are others that, that rejected that opinion. They want to be covered, either because they want to, you know, dot the eyes, cross their T's, and be, be, have something which is, which is acceptable according to all opinions, or if they have specific concerns that there will be halakhic litigation in a Bezden where Rav Moshe is one of the opinions, but, but, you know, but, but not the only opinion, and therefore, you know, in that case, it certainly should be doing halakhic estate planning because, because there will be some sort of psara if you only have Rav Moshe to rely on. Because so, like, like, again, there, there's a very wide range of opinions, and if someone wants to rely on Rav Moshe, that's perfectly okay, but there certainly is, is room for a person to say, for a person to want to do more, and especially when there's a real risk, a risk of monthly. Because basically, with halakhic estate planning, there'll be some transfer before death. Is that the idea? I'm sorry. I, 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 with halakhic estate planning, is there some sort of transfer before death that occurs rather than not after he's already passed, but beforehand? Okay, so, so the, the, the executive summary is two things. There are one of two things that happen. Hard assets, there's a Kenyan, what's known as a Kenyan, which essentially means that the, the testator retains a lifetime estate, the use and, the, and, 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 the, and, the, and all the income, but he gives over the actual goof, the actual asset. The underlying asset is given over right away. Um, there is an escape where he can change his mind, but that's one method of doing it. The problem with that method is that that only works on assets that you have at the time you execute this kind of this, this, this kinder, this will. If a person is younger and expects to, be, to obtain or buy assets in the future, that in halacha can't be done. What they do there is what a shtachat is up where a person basically says, I owe my daughter $5 million. Um, and you create that obligation immediately. It's conditioned, but there's a, there's a, there's a catch. And that is, if the halachic yarshim follow all of my instructions in the will and the trust, then this debt is null and void. So you create a situation where, as a matter of Yerusha, perhaps the sons get everything and the Bukhar gets Pishnayim and they can, and they can and tell their, 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 their sisters, you're not a Yerush, you get nothing. But then the sisters pull out this document that says that daddy owed me $5 million, so I'm taking the entire estate because of this debt. Um, the children then do a little bit of math and say, instead of paying $5 million, all I have to do is give you a third of the estate your share, and then the debt goes away. So then they will voluntarily, if you will, follow the instructions in the will and the trust in order to make this debt null and void. So that's, uh, again, I know that, that was just a mouthful, and, but that's the basic idea of how halakhic estate planning is, is, is done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Rabbi Marburger. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. Have a nice day again. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rabbi Marburger.